Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, April 11th, 2021, and this is show number 831. This week, my guest on Chit Chat Across the Pond was Greg Vanderheiden, Professor and Director of Trace R&D Center at the College of Information Studies at the University of Maryland. Now, that name might sound familiar. That's because I recently interviewed him on the NoSilicast about a product he's working on called Morphic. When we were preparing to do that interview, Greg started to tell me some fascinating stories about the early days of accessibility, and I asked him if he'd come back and tell us about it in Chit Chat Across the Pond. He has literally been working in accessibility for 50 years. In our conversation, he talks about how he got tricked into getting interested in accessibility in the first place and about how he quit his job to start the Trace Institute, which has been a pioneer in high-impact research and development in tech and disability. He then told fascinating stories of how he was invited to work with Apple in the John Scully days. At that time, they felt that accessibility was important enough to dedicate 40 kilobytes of space on the system disk. Now, to give you some perspective, back then, the operating system ran on one or two 400 kilobyte floppies. He got 40 kilobytes. Anyway, this was a fascinating discussion, not just because Greg is a great storyteller, but because of the lessons his vivid examples teach us about how we think about people with disabilities. I really encourage you to go check out Chit Chat Across the Pond, number 680, or check it out in your podcatcher of choice. Tom Merritt and Sarah Lane of the Daily Tech News Show occasionally have what they call roundtable shows. They invite in a few guests to talk about a single subject. This week, they invited me, along with Rod Simmons of the SMR Podcast, Bodie Grimm of the Kilowatt Podcast, and Howard Yermish from howardyermish.com to join them to talk about electric vehicle ownership. When they first set up the list of questions, I, I got to admit that I never thought we could get through so many questions with so many people contributing. But it actually turned out great because each of us had a different perspective and different experiences. Bodhi's podcast is all about EVs in general, so he has this vast depth of knowledge about the progress of all different companies' efforts in this area. Now, Rod, on the other hand, has owned a Model X himself for a very long time, and his wife has a Model 3, and he's the master of charging on long road trips. Howard was great because he owns a Hyundai Kona EV, which I'd never seen before, so it was very additive to the Tesla knowledge from me and Rod. Tom asks us in this, how much does it cost to charge versus buying gas? Sarah owns a gas-powered SUV, and she was shocked at how little we pay to charge in comparison. We talked about the almost non-existent maintenance on EVs, and I think I quelled fears about the longevity of the big batteries. We covered the most common question of how long it takes to charge, and collectively came up with the answer I always say, which is, it depends. This was where Rod's experiences and advice were super valuable about charging on the road. We ended the show by each answering Tom's question, who shouldn't buy an EV? I was intrigued by our four different answers that I think were all correct. Roger Chang is the show's producer, and he's notorious for having contrarian opinions and a little bit of a lack of enthusiasm. I can prove that this was a great show because when we were finished, he was super complimentary and said that he learned a lot. So if you're curious about what it's really like to own an EV from four completely different perspectives, I highly encourage you to follow the link in the show notes to listen to the EV Owners Roundtable DTNS special. Have you ever noticed that when you're listening to the NoSilicast in your podcatcher of choice, that you also get a list of links to each blog post article that's in the show? 
You can simply tap those links to get right to the content, see the images, and follow any links within the articles. In the old days, I wrote one giant blog post for every podcast episode, and these posts were around 5,000 words long. Years ago, I decided to break it up into separate articles and let each article be its own blog post. It was a great decision for so many reasons, but one commitment the listeners asked of me at the time was that I promised to collect the links to all of the blog posts for the week and put them in the final blog post for the podcast episode. Now, it's not hard to collect the blog post links. I wrote a little automator service that makes it quick and easy, but adding them to the podcast feed so that you see them in your podcatcher is an annoying, error-prone, and labor-intensive effort. By labor-intensive, I don't mean it's all that hard each time, but when you realize that I've done it hundreds and hundreds of weeks in a row, you can see how it can get tedious. This process was crying out to be automated, and that's exactly what I did this week. I am very proud of my little self for figuring out how to do it, so I'd like to tell you about it. Let's walk through the manual process first so you'll appreciate what I've changed it to. I write the first show notes for the podcast episode in an application called MarsEdit from RedSweater.com. As you undoubtedly know, this post includes plain text of my introduction, the week's blog posts with links, and also things like the pledge break and ending text that are full of other links. Let's call those links at the end my spam links, just for fun. The blog posts and chit-chat link are distinct from the rest of the text because I meet, make each of those a heading, which makes them easy to jump to with screen readers, and visually they stand out because they're big and bold on the website and underlined so that you can tell that they're links. I do most of the writing in a language called Markdown, which lets you, in a very human-readable way, do things like create a heading. For a heading level 4, for example, which is what I usually use for the blog posts, I simply put four hash marks at the beginning of the line, followed by a space. The chit-chat link is usually a heading level 3 with three hashes, and I might randomly use some other size from time to time. The links themselves that follow the hash marks are actually written in HTML. I know I could write my links in Markdown, but HTML gives me more control over things like whether they open in a new tab or drive you away from my website. You can tell which one I pick. The important thing to know is that the HTML links start with an angle bracket A and they end with an A angle bracket. So while in MarsEdit, the unique blog post links are on a line with some number of hashes, followed by a space, then followed by the URL. Now, the tool I use to create the feed for the podcast is called Feeder from ReinventedSoftware.com. My goal with the show notes inside the feed, and hence inside your podcatcher, is to give you just the links in a nice bulleted list, followed by the top few links I think you might want available, like my email, my Tesla affiliate link, our Slack and Facebook community links, etc. To make this consistent each week, I wrote a text expander snippet that creates what I, what's called an unordered list with a UL tag. That's what creates those bullets for you. And then it plops in all of the spam links down at the bottom. This text expander snippet leaves my cursor ready to put in each list item, which will be the blog post for you. But then comes the super annoying manual and error-prone process of copying each link from MarsEdit and plopping it into Feeder. First in Feeder, I have to use yet another text expander snippet to put in the bullet itself, which is called an LI tag. Then in Feeder, I have to very carefully select the URL by grabbing everything from the angle bracket A to the A angle bracket at the end of the line over in MarsEdit, but not grabbing the space before it or the hashes. I do Command-C to copy, Command-Tab to switch to Feeder, Command-V to paste. Now I have to get out of that LI tag, add a line feed, add another LI line for the next blog post bullet, 
And I actually wrote a third text expander snippet to do that LI nonsense for me. Rinse and repeat for every single blog post you see in your podcatcher. Now, obviously, this is not hard, and it doesn't even take that long. It's less than five minutes a week. But realize, I have done this annoying little exercise literally hundreds and hundreds of times. Heck, I'm sure you were bored just hearing me describe it once. Can you imagine having to do it every week? Hopefully, you now understand my motivation to automate this task. I had a vision of a single keystroke doing all of this work in one fell swoop. I know a lot of tools, but I wasn't sure which was the right one to start with with this kind of task. So I threw it out to the Programming by Stealth Slack channel at podfeet.com slash slack. I had to be very careful how to word this question or else the super helpful folks that follow that channel would have just solved it for me, which would take all the fun out of the project for me. I gave them the barest outline of the problem and I asked them how they would start attacking this automation challenge. I got feedback from Alistair, Nuclear John, Mike Price, Mecca Westbay, and Caleb Fong, and consensus was that the tool I should use was Keyboard Maestro and a mysterious command called SED, spelled S-E-D. I love that they didn't solve it for me, and they left me with just these two clues. In Keyboard Maestro, you add these building blocks together to accomplish your task. My plan was that I'd start with the Mars Edit blog post open in the editing mode, have Keyboard Maestro select all the text, copy it, then some magic would occur in the middle, it would bring the waiting feeder window to the front and paste in the glorious links. I easily built that structure in Keyboard Maestro, adding keystroke blocks for the select all, copy and paste, and then I put in a script block for the magic part. In Taming the Terminal installments 17 and 18, Bart taught us how to use regular expressions to let you find patterns in piles of text using the grep command. That's G-R-E-P. It's a super arcane language with all kinds of crazy characters to work with, but when you need to search for a needle in a haystack of text, regular expressions are the right tool for the job. The main thing to know about regular expressions is that it allows you to search for patterns, not specific text. In the task at hand, I'm not looking for a predefined blog post name. I'm looking for any link that is preceded by some unknown number of hash symbols and a space all on the same line. This is where regular expressions shine. Now, I've only had very few opportunities to actually use regular expressions, so I'm not at all fluent in the language. Luckily, there's a lot of tools available that allow you to test out your regular expressions on a representative bunch of text. A while back, Helma turned me on to a tool called Patterns in the Mac App Store to help with writing regular expressions. It's only $2.99, and it's really helpful. I got pretty far using patterns, but I couldn't remember all of the arcane codes. Now, patterns does have a help file with all of the codes, but there's no search within that file. I switched over to a great website called regex101.com. You not only can test your code against a glop of text, it's got a fantastic search section on the same page to look for the right commands. You can even save a link to your work so you can come back to it later. With a little bit of help from Helma learning about POSIX compliant regular expressions, I had to go look that up, I had what it looked like a working grep command to find the correct lines in my post. I'm now armed with a regular expression that can find all of the instances of lines with links within headings on my blog post. Well, that's great, but I need to change the format of those lines because I don't want those hashes in the space. I need to get rid of them, and I need to add the HTML tags to make those links into bullets. Now, remember that the Slack folks suggested that this mysterious said command would come in handy. 
So I went to the Googles to see what it was all about. It turns out that while grep will find the text you're looking for using regular expressions, the sed command will allow you to modify the text that you found, and it also uses regular expressions. That's good news, because I didn't have time to learn yet another set of commands. I studied a bunch of examples of sed online, and I got things sort of working, but not quite right. It was time to annoy Alistair Jenks. He was the one who told me to use sed in the first place, so this was all his fault. I was super vague with Alistair in my explanation of where I was stuck, again, to keep him from solving my problem, and he was still able to give me the bits I needed. He created a super simple example of how to use grep and sed together to find and replace text. It allowed me to easily see where I'd gone wrong and got me back on the rails. Once I had things working in the test environment of the Patterns app, it was time to break out of the sandbox and test the code in the terminal on some real files. One reason I really like the app Patterns that Helma recommended is that you get, uh, you get your grep or sed command working in that little sandbox environment, then you can just click a button and copy either the grep or sed command and paste it into the terminal or into a shell script. Now, Bart started teaching me shell scripts probably around, I don't know, what was it, 1972? At least it feels that long ago. But this was actually the very first time I ever wrote a shell script all by my lonesome. I actually used my physical copy of the Taming the Terminal book to look up how to make my shell script executable. When I finally got that all working, I pasted the shell script into Keyboard Maestro. Now, I don't want to oversell this, sh this shell script, but it was two whole lines. And one line was to tell it which shell to use. The second line was the regular expression. But hey, I was still very proud of it. At this point, my keyboard maestro macro could copy the text from MarsEdit and manipulate it so it was in the right form and then paste it into Feeder. Technically, I had now met my own requirement specification for this task. But you know what? Once you get an automation working, it is impossible not to see I could do even more. Now remember, I use a text expander snippet to set up feeder first with the bulleted list tag and my spammy links. What if I could have Keyboard Maestro execute the text expander snippet too and only then drop in my copied and manipulated links? That would be even cooler. One of the many building blocks in Keyboard Maestro allows you to type text. So I can just tell it to type my text expander abbreviation, which would then expand the full snippet into feeder. The beauty of this is that I can continue to maintain my text expander snippet with updated links over time, and the keyboard maestro macro will always have the latest version. I thought I'd learned everything text expander could do when I developed a video tutorial on it for Screencast Online, but I learned something new. You can put a placeholder in the middle of your snippet for the clipboard. Since the clipboard has my fancy extracted links, I was able to have them land right where I wanted them in my unordered list. In the end, my keyboard maestro micro turned out my I said that all wrong. My keyboard maestro macro turned out to be very simple. My early versions were very complicated. It had if then else blocks. It was saving text out to multiple text files and then bringing back the text files and copying it again. Anyway, I told Bart when I was done, it was like I started by building a set of monkey bars, but when I was done, I realized all I needed was a ladder. Now, Bart told me he was worried about learning Keyboard Maestro because he'd be too tempted to automate everything, whether it saved him much time or not. This very simple macro took me probably around seven hours and five people's help to accomplish over the course of three days. And it will save me less than five minutes a week. That means my time investment will pay off in 19 short months. But you know what? I'll be less annoyed. 
I learned a lot, so the next time I need grep or sed or keyboard maestro, I'll start out by standing on a better foundation to do even more. I don't take for granted that I have more time to spend on learning than most people, but you know what? I gave up watching TV every night this week to get this done, and I feel like it was time spent very well spent. Now, I've included a link to download my tiny little keyboard maestro macro with my amazing regular expression because that's how you do it with keyboard maestro. You have to share. Next up, we have a review by Kurt Liebezeit, who is also known as PDX Kurt in the live chat room. This is a review of the Apple Beats Flex wireless Bluetooth earphones. As you might guess, I'm a fan of podcasts. For quite some time, I've used an iPod Nano 6th generation, you know, the small square ones that clip on your clothing, as my main podcast player. However, there are problems. They only accept wired earphones, which frequently catch on bicycle handlebars and doorknobs. They wear out and have to be replaced with chancy purchases off of eBay. They're too limited in capacity for many of the podcasts that I'd like to listen to while cycling or farming. Worst of all, when I listen to some podcasts on the little iPod Nano and some via my phone's Bluetooth connection in my car, iTunes gets confused and starts marking episodes that I've listened to already as unheard. For all these reasons, it made sense to consider switching all of my podcast listening over to my phone and use wireless earphones. I know, welcome to 2016. My decision to change over coincided with Apple's release of the Beats Flex earphones last fall. The headline features of the Beats Flex that were attractive to me were the battery life, listed as 12 hours of listening time, and the expectation that they would be seamless in integration with Apple's devices. The Beats Flex have delivered on both counts. I haven't actually run them down for 12 hours, but I have done several multi-hour listening sessions, and when I've checked the battery level afterwards, it has always appeared consistent with that 12-hour specification. And they are seamless in use, much like AirPods, I suppose. Pairing them to a phone is a breeze. The battery level is visible on my phone or iPad. They function as a talk and listen device on phone calls. And you can invoke Siri with a long button push. Physically, the Beats Flex are of the necklace style. A cable connects the right and left earbuds with two small inline capsules that house the battery and the controls. These capsules sit on your shoulders while the cable goes around the back of your neck. The right capsule has the charging port and the power button, which also has a tiny status LED built into it. The LED glows faintly white while the earphones are on and the battery charge is plentiful, turning first red and then pulsing red as the battery charge depletes down to that last half hour. The charging port is a USB-C, which is not that unusual. However, the cable supplied is A, very short, and B, USB-C to USB-C. If you're like me and don't have recent Apple charging equipment with a USB-C port, then you'll have to buy a little USB-C female to USB-A mail adapter. The left side capsule has an up-down volume rocker button and a multi-purpose play, pause, Siri, 
phone control bump, as well as the microphone. The button sizes are distinct enough for me to discern them by touch, which is good since you can't see the capsules while wearing them on your body. The earbuds incorporate a magnet in each, so they snap together around your neck when you're not using them. This is more secure and less likely to lead to a tangled mess, which you might get if you simply jam them into a pocket. If a phone call comes in while they're snapped together, unsnapping them will answer the call. Similarly, if you are listening to a music or a podcast and snap them together, this will act like a pause command. The cable that connects the earbuds and capsules is flat and a little stiff. This makes it resistant to snarls and tangles, but I've found that folding it into a loop that will fit in a little rectangular zippered case can be a bit tricky. That is really all there is to say about features, so let's talk about what are probably the two most important attributes for earphones. Fit and sound quality. The earbuds are of the in-ear variety, which I usually have trouble keeping in my ears. I have a drawer full of various in-ear earbuds that I've tried and given up on. However, the Beats Flex earbuds are slightly angled so that the back of the earbuds wedge against your ear a little, and to my surprise, I found that they work pretty well for me. Your mileage may vary. As for sound quality, they're much better than my usual wired Apple earbuds. It feels like all the frequencies are present and accounted for, with nothing being overly emphasized. They have a decent sense of stereo separation and presence, and they don't sound tinny or boomy. All of which is to say, they're at least as good as anything else I've ever tried, and a good deal better than most. Finally, let's talk value. When they were released last fall, the price was $55, and they were only available in two colors, yucky yellow and disappear into your backpack black. I thought that even with those choices, the Beats Flex were a good value. As I write this now, the big retailer that starts with the letter A is selling the Beats Flex for only $40, and in better colors like blue and gray to boot. So if you like the idea of AirPods, but want longer battery life, or are worried about losing small bits, or concerned about durability, I would say give the Beats Flex earphones a try. Thanks a lot for that, Kurt. In case any of you are wondering, yes, he is a radio DJ, and that's why he has that fantastic radio voice. I really appreciate that, and your color options on that are my favorite thing about the whole review. This week, two people demonstrated the value they get out of the Podfeet podcast in a financial way. I had to giggle at Rob the Dutch's pledge on Patreon because he actually pledged the value of pi. Now, how nerd awesome is that? He's basically my hero. In his Patreon donation, he thanked me and Steve for the podcast, which I really liked. Unless you attend the live show where Steve does all the heavy lifting of the production of the video, you may rarely hear from him. But I assure you, he's quietly in the background supporting everything I do, and I absolutely would not be able to do what I do without his help. Now, we also had Kenneth, who went the PayPal route, and he sent a very generous donation and included a very kind note about the effort I put into helping the tech community. As I told him, his kind words meant even more to me than the money, but that I'll still accept the money. 
If you'd like to show your support, please click the red button entitled Support the Show on podfeed.com to see all of the different options and pick one that's right for you. Michael Carpelson is a senior staff engineer at Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. At the CSUN Assistive Tech Conference, he told me about a unique idea he's been working on to help with age-related vision loss. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right. So when we talked, you mentioned that the, the work you're doing is part of something called the VIS Institute. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. Uh, so the VIS Institute is a multidisciplinary research institute that's part of Harvard University in Boston. Uh, I work with the Harvard Microrobotics Lab, which is part of the VIS as well as the Harvard School of Engineering. And this lab is headed by Professor Rob Wood. Uh, on the research side, we're mostly known for our work on insect-scale robots, basically tiny flying robots inspired by bees, crawling robots inspired by cockroaches and centipedes, uh, and other insects people would normally find gross. Okay, uh, is it creepy however, walking around your lab? I mean, is there like little little bugs flying all over the place? Fortunately, they are well confined to uh, experimental areas by, you know, by the fact that the technology is still a few years away from being, you know, autonomous and out in the world. Okay, so you so, have them in cages. Good, good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so that, that said, we're always looking for ways to kind of take the technologies that we develop in the course of this work and look for more near-term applications. So, for example, some of the micromanufacturing we've developed could potentially be applied to new types of surgical tools. And uh, over the past couple of years, we've been leaning on our expertise in tiny actuators and mechanisms to uh, develop this new type of tactile display for the blind and visually impaired, especially those who, as you mentioned, who are, visioning, uh, who are losing vision from age-related causes. Uh, and that's our multi-segment tactile display project. Okay, so uh, I only figured out what you meant by multi-segment uh, tactile display when you held it up in front of me on screen. So we're going to need to break that down for the people who are listening. What do you mean by tactile multi-segment display? Absolutely. I thought this, this question might come. So a multi-segment display uh, is something that's familiar to virtually any sighted individual. Uh, picture the numbers on your microwave oven or your digital wristwatch, which are all composed of these seven little sticks or segments. And by lighting up the different segments, you can get different numbers and letters to appear. Uh, but if you're listening to this and you're not familiar with this type of display, either because you're blind or due to some other issue, uh, then imagine a number eight that's kind of boxy and drawn using two squares instead of two circles. And now imagine that each side of those two squares uh, of which there's seven because they share one side. Imagine that each side is its own little segment that can raise or lower. That would be the simplest kind of multi-segment display, the seven-segment display, which can reproduce uh, numbers and most letters in the English alphabet. And if you go to more segments, such as 14 or 16, then you can do the entire alphabet with pretty high fidelity. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, when you said raise or lower, in the case of a clock on a microwave, that's light. But you're actually raising and lowering those segments? Correct, correct. And uh, uh, our technology is such that you can both have the visual indication, so the segments would light up, and they would rise and lower out of the plane of the display so you can pass your finger over them and feel what the number or letter is. Okay. So you talked about going from 7 to, you said, 14 or, or more? Uh, for uh, usually, I think sixteen segment is the maximum number of uh, of segments that have been realized. Okay, and that's because and as you as you increase that number, it probably wouldn't increase the fidelity to your fingers to be able to feel it. 
Right. Uh, at some point, you kind of you you run out of ways of representing numbers and letters with just these these you know these line segments, mm -hmm. uh, and at some point, you would probably transition to a display that's just composed of dots, called a dot matrix display. Uh, so, sixteen segments is kind of where that utility tops out for the multi-segment displays. I see. I see. So now, when I picture my microwave oven saying, you know, blinking twelve. You know, because <laughs> it's like that's what they're for, right? Um, but I picture the the microwave display. the The letters are like maybe an inch tall. You're going to be doing this in much much smaller seg, some smaller size, right? Uh, not that well. Uh, yeah, smaller than an inch. Our uh, our current design point, the characters, uh, I believe, about sixteen millimeters tall. So that's you know more than half an inch, less than an inch. Uh, and that is based on some preliminary studies that we've done with, you know, people actually touching mock-ups of these um, different versions of these characters and letting us know what was easiest to read, what was most e easy to perceive. Okay. So now what kind of devices would you, well, actually, let's stay back with the problem to be solved. So you talk specifically about age-related uh, vision impairments. Why specifically people with those conditions? Uh, excellent question. So, uh, like many researchers in the space, uh, we initially thought about Braille when we thought about assistive tactile technology. Uh, but based on our conversations within uh, the visually impaired community and also on our own kind of background research, we learned that the majority of visual impairment today is due to age-related causes. And many people in later life could find it difficult to suddenly learn this entirely new form of communication, Braille. Um, the benefit of these multi-segment alphanumeric characters is that they are immediately recognizable with little to no training. Um, as, I, uh, as I mentioned you know, in our preliminary tests, uh, people have either picked it up right away or within a couple of minutes of practice. Uh, another benefit that we also touched on, you can combine visual indication with tactile. Uh, in other words, the segment both light up and move and rise up. Uh, so our target user might be someone who's beginning to experience age-related vision loss, uh, initially probably relying more on the high-contrast visual indication that is supplemented by tactile, and then gradually transitioning to a greater reliance on tactile as their vision decreases. Uh, and and a, a secondary question there, when maybe you just haven't asked it yet, but I figure I touch on it anyway, is why multi-segment? Why not, as we, as we also touched on, a display composed of hundreds of tiny dots that can display any tactile pattern? Uh, and the answer there is cost. In any tactile device, the cost is driven by the number of actuators. Basically, each little thing that moves, whether it's a braille dot or a segment in a display or a dot in a dot matrix display, it's going to need its own separate actuator. And the more actuators you have, the more the device ends up costing. Uh, and this is why so many braille displays still cost thousands of dollars. And only now, kind of, I think after decades of development, we're seeing the first braille devices in the $500 price point. Right, right. So um, I'm going to show off my mechanical engineering prowess and explain to people what an actuator is. Um, if you've ever taken apart a speaker or been interested in how they work, basically you've got a, a coil of wire that goes uh, with a magnet into the coil. And then as you apply electricity to the uh, a current to the to the coil, that causes the magnet to move. And that's what moves a speaker. That's called an actuator. And that's what you're you're building little teeny tiny ones of these, right? Something like that. More broadly, an actuator is kind of anything that brings a component into motion. Uh, the particular actuation technology you mentioned is called the voice coil actuator, which, yes, is, a, you know, big, the mainstay of speakers. 
we do use an electromagnetic actuation method that also relies on coils and magnetic fields. It's a little bit different than you know what you see in a speaker, uh, but many of the principles are the same. Ooh, I'm gonna need to see uh, some you know patents on that or something. I wanna I wanna learn what that is. <laughs> I told you I'd want to get nerdy out there. <laughs> okay, so um, now I wanted to dial back to when you were talking about people who've just lost their vision or they're just starting to learn their lose their vision. You're saying they would work with high contrast visual elements of these segments moving and lighting up. And, but then eventually as the vision continues to decline, they could move into the tactile space. So the idea of age related is I still remember what that microwave oven clock looked like. And that's why it's easier for me. If, if I'm uh, been blind since birth I wouldn't naturally know what an eight looks like. There's no reason for me to learn that method because I can learn, you know, I can learn Braille and that's going to be more efficient. But if I already know what an eight looks like and I know what a seven looks like in those segmented displays, it would be faster for me to learn to use your tool. Is that right? Correct. That is exactly it. Basically, you have, you know, the the benefit of a partially sighted life uh, where you are used to more conventional looking numbers and letters. And this is an approximation of that uh, rather than Braille, which is a, a whole different type of binary code, which you would need to learn to, you know, map to every letter and number. I wonder whether it could become the uh, the gateway drug, though, to learning to uh, to read Braille. So if, if I it's start certain- realizing I can recognize letters with my fingers, I might be going, OK, so what I want to I want to do more with my fingers now that my eyes aren't, aren't behaving the way I want them to. Maybe I could do something more with my fingers. It's certainly something that's occurred to us. Uh, you know, we don't know if that's how it'll pro- play out in practice, uh, but it certainly would be very interesting to see this as a gateway to um, to Braille, uh, because in general, Braille literacy uh, has been dropping. Uh, and partly, this is a good thing because fewer people are blind from birth uh, due to medical advances and kind of advances in prenatal care uh, and then postnatal care. Uh, but yes, it would uh, it would actually be uh, be a, a very uh, uh, attractive outcome, I think, if this opened a, a new world of tactile technologies to the users. Yeah, I don't think you could make that happen, but it would be cool if it did, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so now, talking about the size of these, what do you what are you picturing these uh, these segmented um, uh, tactile displays? What what kind of devices could we hope to see them in? Uh, so this technology can be applied to, you know, broadly to any device with an alphanumeric readout, whether it's an appliance or a wearable device uh, or a medical device. Uh, we believe that the most promising applications might be for wearable and portable devices, basically devices that are carried outside the home. Uh, the reason for this is we we don't view this technology as a replacement for something like audio feedback or a replacement for Braille, but rather as a complementary technology for certain use cases. In the case of something like a fitness tracker or activity monitor that you wear on your wrist or a portable blood pressure monitor that you take with you uh, or a glucometer, for example, if you have diabetes and have uh, vision loss associated with diabetes. Uh, these are devices that you're going to take outside the home where audio technology can sometimes introduce privacy concerns by using audio technology. You're kind of advertising to everyone around you that you're visually impaired. Um, and, um, it, you know, studies have shown that a lot of people prefer to not do that. 
Um, you don't want to go, also, woo, your blood pressure is high. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and also, of course, when you're talking about age-related vision loss, it is frequently associated with simultaneous hearing loss, which also complicates uh, you know, the use of audio technology, especially outside the home, potentially noisy environments. You know, uh, Imagine having to press that button many times and yell the information at you. Um, and, you know, a way to potentially avoid that and have a better user experience. So now if I picture this on my on my uh, fitness device on my wrist and I want to read, you know, how far have I walked? Um, that that gets makes me think that you guys have probably studied how small it's practical to be able to read with your fingers. These multi-segmented yes. displays. Yes, we've uh, we've done some preliminary studies where we 3D printed uh, many plastic uh, mock-ups of these segmented characters, and we varied several parameters: the size of the character, obviously, the thickness of each segment, how far it protrudes from the plane of the display, and we've uh, we've uh, had people kind of evaluate and tell us what they found to be easiest to read. And that is how we arrived at, you know, our current design point, that kind of 16 millimeter tall, eight millimeter wide character. And it sticks out about half a millimeter from the plane of, uh, of the device. Ooh, I got to write that down. You said eight millimeter wide and how, how, so, how far does it so stick out? Uh, we, we found that about half a millimeter is generally uh, uh, a nice sweet spot. Okay. It's interesting. We uh, we came into it with some assumptions such as larger is better, uh, but that turns out not to be the case because uh, frequently for a large character, people with smaller fingers need to move their finger over the character to really get all of it. And there seems to be really a sweet spot uh, kind of around where, where I mentioned where you can quickly feel all of the segments with your fingertip, oh. but also it's not too small that you're having trouble telling the different segments apart oh interesting so if you if you have to travel around to find it you could uh, mentally get lost right you forget where was i before but if you can touch the whole thing it's it's i don't think it's so much about getting lost as just the time it takes for you to pass your finger over the entire thing and of course faster is better when you're trying to get information out of the device that's really interesting. Sorry, I'm start writing stuff down because I'm I'm really intrigued with this. This is uh, this is pretty cool. So, how far along in the development are you? Are you years away, minutes away? Um, uh, somewhere in between. But, <laughs> uh, but basically, for the for the past couple of years, um, we've uh, we've been working on this project. We've been addressing kind of the key uh, technical challenges of this display. Of course, that actuator array, which is you know the 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 driving force behind it, and all of the pieces and components that interface with that. Um, we've been doing a lot of also manufacturing validation. Basically, uh, today, using our fancy you know, lab equipment, we could make prototypes that work, uh, but they would be prohibitively expensive if you were to make them and put them into a product. Uh, so in some ways, this is not like a standard research project, and we're trying to kind of bake the cost engineering into the design, into the development process. Uh, we're working with contract manufacturers to actually make key pieces of this device using the processes that would eventually be used in a manufacturing scenario, such that when, uh, you know, when somebody, we or a partner is ready to put this into a product, there's a clear path to manufacturing and also a clear path to kind of a reasonable cost at low to medium volumes. 
a lot of the times we hear the you know stories such as oh this will be really cheap once we make a billion of them <laughs> but the reality is that this is an assistive technology it's not going to be an iphone and so it has to be practical one when manufactured at these low to medium volumes uh, otherwise it becomes you know an overpriced luxury item that um, you know that doesn't really make a difference uh now as far as where we're now um Around uh, June of this year, we're targeting, we're hoping to produce some fully integrated prototypes, what we call study grade prototypes, basically ones that are, you know, uh, robust, uh, robust enough to pass around and really get some more, uh, do a more rigorous user feedback study than what we did before with, with the static 3D printed samples. Uh, and of course, capture, you know, things that cannot be captured with the static models, such as, you know, how, you know, are people comfortable with how fast the numbers change? Uh, is it too slow? Is it, is it too fast? Uh, of course, the 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 visual indicator and things like that. Uh, so yes, we are uh, we've um, uh, rather than kind of drive quickly towards a fully integrated demo that's possibly not you know realistically manufactured. We've been trying to do it all at once and have a realistic path to manufacturing, testing key subcomponents of this system such that when we do have that fully integrated prototype, it's also something reasonable with a path to um, to commercial manufacturing. I guess I should assume that uh, people in this field at Harvard are smart, uh, but that sounds really smart <laughs> to do it that way. I, I've worked on uh, projects where, you know, we, we made this... Um, for me, what for me was a very tiny voice coil actuator system and, you know, completely impractical to make a second one. I mean, we never could, but we spent all this money making it once and uh, it didn't, it didn't work too well. Yeah, it's, um, it's certainly, and, and when working in research, it's kind of easy. We're, we, we usually live in this world of one-off prototypes for a paper or for a big demo, but here when we're targeting a real world application, we certainly need to consider some of these. And, and one of the main focuses of the Vs Institute is, uh, is commercial translation, basically one of the, arguably the, the primary mission of the Institute is to take kind of that lab grown technology and help get it to the real world faster. Oh, that's and, interesting. That's what the Institute is for. Yep. Huh. Okay. So uh, if people want to learn more about this, ask questions, get involved, I mean, offer to be a tester or anything like that, is there a path for that? Yes, probably the easiest way is to go to the Vs Institute website. Uh, it's wyss.harvard.edu. Uh, it's confusing because it's pronounced Vs, but it's a W. Uh, and then once you're there, just search for tactile display. It will take you to a page that has my contact information contact information of other people that are involved in the project uh feel free to reach out at any time we're happy to answer questions uh we're happy to talk about partnership opportunities uh, uh we're happy to discuss you know user feedback studies when we're closer to that point um and yes we, we generally just love to hear from you very cool very cool well th thank you very much michael for coming on this is uh this is a whole different angle to take on this and i'm excited to see people working on it uh like i like to say a lot of people say about uh disabilities is you're if you live long enough you will have one so uh you know everything you're doing is going to benefit uh benefit all of us probably at some point if we're lucky enough to live that long we certainly hope so and uh thank you very much for having me um 
And uh, hopefully we'll be chatting again in a year when this is in uh, a bunch of assistive products. That would be awesome. Thanks a lot. Well, that winds up our coverage for CSUN for the year, and it also winds up this show for this week. Don't forget to send your jump questions, and everything is fiddly recordings. We haven't had any in a little bit. And you can also send comments and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to be like Rob and do become a patron? You can do that by going to podfeet.com slash Patreon. And if you want to be like Kenneth and do a one-time donation, you can do that too podfeet.com slash paypal you want to join our community and chat with people how about talking to those cool programming by stealth people over in our slack at podfeet.com slash slack or you can join our facebook community at podfeet.com slash facebook and if you want to join in the fun of the live show head on over to podfeet.com slash live on sunday nights at 5 p.m pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic nocilla castaways you could even meet pdx kurt who did that review for us this week thanks for listening and stay subscribed.